0: hey everyone so today's episode is going to be about diminished responsibility or to put it another way how to get away with murder by being convicted of manslaughter so first and foremost what is diminished responsibility it's one of the three special defenses to murder the other two are suicide packs and loss of control Uh, usually people don't well, law schools don't teach suicide pacts because it's a pretty rare thing. It's diminished responsibility and loss of control are a lot more generally applicable. So it's not going to be something you'll see a lot of the special defense of a suicide pact. And the function of these three special defenses are it relegates what would be a conviction for murder to a conviction for voluntary manslaughter. There's two types of manslaughter. There's voluntary manslaughter, which is a um, excuse me murder charge that was relegated to a conviction for manslaughter because one of the special defences was demonstrated. Or one of the other defences that relegates a more serious crime to a less serious crime because it's a partial, not a full defence, was successfully pleaded. And this involuntary manslaughter, which is what most people would think of as manslaughter, the um, gross negligence manslaughter, constructive manslaughter, and reckless manslaughter. And obviously the involuntary manslaughter is what most people think of when they hear the word manslaughter of its killing a person, but by mistake. Uh, And that obviously is not true of voluntary manslaughter, so... That's a quick uh, bonus fact about homicide law, in case you're desperate for one. But the special defence of diminished responsibility comes from Section 2 of the Homicide Act, 1957, as amended by the Coroner's and Justice Act of 2009. And it defines responsibility as an abnormality of mental functioning caused by a recognised medical condition which explains the defendant's acts or omissions in respect to the killing and substantially impaired their mental ability to understand the nature of their conduct, form a rational judgement or exercise self control. Now, the Coroners and Justice Act 2009 actually changed the wording slightly. They used the phrase abnormality of mental functioning rather than abnormality of the mind. It's a very minor change, but it was believed that uh, abnormality of the mind was too ambiguous and it needed clarification. It doesn't, however, appear to have substantially altered how the law actually works. It doesn't appear that there's going to be a lot of people who would previously have been able to plead diminished responsibility successfully, who are now going to be denied it because of the change in wording. And as a final point, in case you wonder why a person would try and run diminished responsibility, which is obviously a partial defence, rather than an absolute defence that leads to an acquittal, it's because murder has a mandatory life sentence. If a person is convicted of murder, they get a life sentence. It's really that simple. There's no room for manoeuvre. The judge can't exercise any discretion. If you're convicted of murder, you get a life sentence. It's just like that. Manslaughter has a maximum life sentence, meaning you can get any um, sentence up to life, but the judge doesn't have to impose any specific sentence. Strictly speaking, he or she could there's a equality act uh phrasing of he can mean she and she can mean he there for you can essentially give them an absolute discharge if the circumstances would make it just to do so although since manslaughter is a homicide offense i think it would be exceedingly rare for an absolute discharge There's going to be at least some form of supervision or a suspended sentence. It's very rare they're going to just be allowed to walk free. So what does an abnormal mental functioning mean? And what is the importance of a medical condition? Well, the phrasing is deliberately left ambiguous and broad so that the defence can be applied widely. They were very wary of trying to be too specific and therefore constraining the defense and denying it to people who should be allowed to plead it purely because it falls under a circumstance that hadn't previously been appreciated. For instance, there are a lot of women who are convicted of murder because they'd killed their abusive husband and. There was nothing that really could be done, they'd killed a um, person, they'd committed murder, there was very little that could be done for them. However, with a better understanding by psychologists of what's referred to as battered woman syndrome, it became clear that there was a mental condition that was at play here in a lot of these cases and therefore they should have been able to Plea diminished responsibility. That's not the same as saying they would have been found not guilty of murder and convicted of manslaughter, it just means they should have been allowed to at least put the defence to the jury on the grounds that they did have a medical condition that affected their mental functioning. So the importance of medical evidence is primarily that it's not supposed to be so broad that any little um, issue will protect a defendant from being convicted of murder. Although it says in R.V. Miller that jealousy was considered an abnormal mental functioning, it's very important to note that in that case the jealousy was beyond The standard jealousy you see in love dramas and teen high school TV shows that all of a sudden are flooding back in my memory and causing me intense shame and regret at having even seen them. Now another thing that needs to be considered is medical evidence is not the be all and end all. Just because a doctor says this person was suffering from medical condition when they committed the offence, that doesn't mean the jury has to accept the defence. And this can actually be seen in the Yorkshire Ripper case, Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. Uh, You probably know that I am from Yorkshire and wonder, do I have a personal connection to this case? Yes, he tried to murder someone in my family. Not a big fan of this, man. Not going to lie about that. She was a schoolgirl, and he tried to murder her. Not happy with him. He tried to plead diminished responsibility, and the prosecution were actually willing to accept it. But in an unbelievably surprising turn of events, the trial judge actually asked the prosecution to justify allowing him to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. And the prosecution then had to justify to the judge allowing his guilty plea. And the judge found it unconvincing and refused to accept the guilty plea, saying it should have it should, and indeed was, put to the jury. Was Peter Sutcliffe suffering from abnormal mental functioning caused by medical condition? And should he be convicted of manslaughter rather than murder and if you're familiar with the case you'll know that the jury's decision was no Peter Sutcliffe is a murderer they convicted him of murder and rejected diminished responsibility so if you look at these cases that I've listed I think most people would accept that an irresistible impulse to kill and mutilate as in R and V burn 1960 is going to be an abnormal mental functioning. The jealousy in R. V. Miller or the premenstrual tension in R. V. Reynolds are probably not going to be abnormal in the way people expect it to be. So it's important to bear in mind that the defendant must bear responsibility to demonstrate that the characteristic that impaired their mental functioning is excessive compared to what a reasonable person may experience. Just because you get PMT doesn't mean that you've got free reign to murder people. I'm going to just say that right now in case anyone has somehow got it into the head that you can. And the same is true for jealousy. It has to be excessive compared to the experience of a reasonable person. Now once the abnormality can be demonstrated it now will fall to the defence to prove that the abnormality caused the defendant's action. Of course they might have physically killed them themselves or they might have been party to a killing. I mean it's only available for murder so a killing is necessary. And therefore they have to prove causation that It's not just the fact that they have a mental condition that exonerates them. They have to show that the mental condition was the cause of the homicide. And failure to do so means the defense will be rejected. It doesn't need to be the sole cause, however. It needs to be, at a very minimum, a significant factor in causing the defendant to act or fail to act as they did. That would be legal causation. The courts have, over the years, clarified that being drunk and drinking alcohol is not an abnormality. Um, I think everyone kind of accepts that Britain has a drinking problem in general. But, then again, alcohol dependency syndrome is a recognised medical condition. Although, in fairness, I'm pretty sure tiredness is as well. I've got a very vague memory of a discussion of of medical evidence in law, and is it as useful as people believe it to be? So, to explain how this functions, there's three cases, Tandy, Wood and Stewart. Now, in Tandy, the murder conviction was actually upheld, because although the defendant was an alcoholic, it was common ground between prosecution and defence that she was an alcoholic. It was believed that she could control her drinking, and was still able to exercise control over what she was doing. There's no indication she'd suffered brain damage, or anything else that could have impaired her reasoning. She might have been slightly drunk, but slightly drunk is not going to cut it. Wood and Stewart had very similar facts, and the essential takeaway from these cases is a defendant may have a mixture of irresistible cravings for alcohol, but also have at points voluntarily taken alcohol. It's not a if the defendant is able to decide to take a drink, then they don't have they do not have impaired mental functioning. They can still, and alcohol dependency is a very real it mental issue. And just to demonstrate that this isn't just an alcohol thing, in RV O'Connell from 1997, the same approach was used for prescription drugs, and any intoxicant or drug or addiction could, in theory, be used. But obviously it would need to be, uh, in itself, abnormal. It can't just be... For instance, the sort of person who is slightly nicer after they've had a coffee than compared to when they haven't had a coffee. This needs to almost certainly reach some degree of addiction or dependency. So what happens if there is a mixture of intoxication paired with an impairment of mental functioning? Well, there's precedent for this. If the defendant was intoxicated, but was suffering from mental impairment and, and then a, a mental impairment, then a defence can still be available if it substantially impaired their ability to reason their actions. In R. V. Gittens, nineteen eighty four, and R. V. Deachman, two thousand and three, this is exactly what was held. The defense had both taken quite a bit of alcohol and weren't completely blind, blackout drunk but were definitely drunk to some extent, but also had pretty severe mental issues. And they felt that between the two of them, the defendant's activity of committing homicide could be explained and the mental functioning was definitively a significant part of it, even if perhaps the alcohol had also played its own part. They did, however, state that this is from R v. Dowds, not the other two cases. So in R v. Dowds, they explicitly stated that acute voluntary intoxication will not be enough. Now, if that sounds a bit too fancy, acute voluntary intoxication is legal speak for binge drinking. So, is the impairment of mental ability substantial? Because it needs to be for the defence to be successfully used. Substantial impairment is not the same as saying a total loss of control over your actions. That would be automatism, which is a separate absolute defence. In R.V. Campbell from 1997, the defendant was an epileptic and had frontal lobe damage to his brain, which rendered his ability to exercise sound judgement very significantly impaired. His conviction for murder was overturned, because medical knowledge in the years since had shown that the frontal lobe damage was a lot more significant an impairment to exercising rational judgement than had been believed at trial. So a retrial had to be ordered so the defendant could put to the jury that he should be found not guilty of murder instead convicted of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility based on a new medical evidence that couldn't have been adduced at his previous trial because the medical knowledge simply wasn't there. They did, however, caution future lawyers to beware that if the defendant is able to pre-plan their actions or there is an appearance that the attack or the activity was premeditated, it indicates that they're exercising some degree of judgment. It's very unlikely that a person could have a substantial impairment of the mental ability and retain sufficient mental faculty to pre-plan a murder or homicide they can be still impaired but that level of pre-planning is seen as antithetical to the idea of a substantial mental impairment now can a defense be raised on appeal if it wasn't raised at trial yes but only limited circumstances. The reason for this is actually quite simple. If the defense were to hold back evidence that they could have proposed at trial for tactical reasons to base on appeal, it would tie up a significant amount of court time as you'd have to have trial, uh, appeal, retrial over and over again because the jury Is essentially being denied the opportunity to consider evidence they could have been allowed to consider, purely so that the defendant can keep appealing against the conviction. So with that in mind, the general rule is if you had the opportunity to raise a defense at trial and you deliberately choose not to, congrats, you've played yourself. Enjoy your conviction for murder not a good chance, not a good idea. This is how I think it happened in Andrews. Defence at trial had been focused on self-defence rather than diminished responsibility. Although diminished responsibility was proposed and it was raised in court, but the evidence was all about self-defence and the idea that it had been an accident rather than the mental impairment. So with that in mind, the Court of Appeal refused to allow fresh evidence to be given to a jury at a retrial because the defendant already had the opportunity to raise diminished responsibility and had chosen not to. Instead of saying that they had a mental impairment, they had essentially said they were acting in self-defense and it had been an accident. They'd had a fair trial. There was no reason to give them a new one. Now this is in contrast to the case of Alawalia, which is one of the battered women cases I alluded to earlier. The Court of Appeal did allow the appeal and ordered a retrial based on evidence that had come up since then. diminished responsibility had not been raised at Alawalia's trial because although there was some evidence that she was suffering from mental impairment Battered Woman Syndrome, this was overlooked because it wasn't widely recognised as being a mental issue at the time. We're talking the 1980s and I think it was the uh, early to mid 1990s when the British psychology uh, governance accepted that battered woman syndrome was a legitimate uh, medical condition. There have been psychologists who accepted it was, but I don't think it was officially added to the list of mental illnesses until after Alawalia's trial. And as a matter of fact, Alawalia was not consulted about whether to investigate further whether she was suffering a mental impairment. So with that in mind, of course the appeal had to be allowed. She had to be given the fair trial of raising diminished responsibility and, if I remember correctly, the jury did accept that that's exactly what had happened. So to try and summarise this a bit better, new evidence is likely to be accepted only if it was not raised at trial because it wasn't available or other factors prevented it from being raised at trial. If the decision not to raise the defence is tactical, it's a very very steep hill to climb before an appellate court will allow you to plead that there's been new evidence and essentially reargue your entire case. So, don't try and game the system. The system is going to fight back. Now, I imagine there's going to be a lot of true crime fans who are going to have picked up on the fact that I use the phrase murder in this... Um, Episode. So, hello to you all. I'm beginning to think you're all going to want me to do a lot of podcasts on this as a how to get away with murder sort of series. I'm not averse to doing so, but I am supposed to be a law channel. Nonetheless, I hope this has been helpful and I hope you enjoyed it. And